0: RN2
1: The Naked Scientist
2: We're taking your calls now and we're going to play your voice notes with your science related questions for none other than Dr. Chris Smith the Naked Scientist and this is a, a science segment it happens every Monday just after 2:30 where you can ask whatever science preoccupation curiosity fascination you have hello Chris
1: Hello. This is my favourite time of the week. It's great. Ah, oh, it's nice cool. It's it's so cool, isn't it? Because we you know we sort of talk talk over all kinds of topics, and obviously it's very dominated by COVID at the moment. But it's it's really refreshing, actually, to talk to some people on different views, different mindsets, sometimes, but the same you know humanity uniting us all, and therefore the same interest in science.
2: Keith has given us a call from Athol. As you were saying, a lot has to do with COVID. Keith, that's what's on your mind as well. Hi.
1: Hi, Zonia, Dr. Chris. Hi, Keith.
3: Um, The question relates to vaccines, blood clotting, and low platelet counts. So the FDA paused the, the J&J vaccine rollout to conduct an investigation when six females out of 6.8 million developed a rare and severe case of blood clotting. It also transpired that the six females had a low platelet count. So we know that platelets help to stop bleeding, they assist in blood clotting and very low platelet counts can lead to internal bleeding. So uh, the question is, if people had a, lo- a low count before vaccination or the vaccine caused the platelet count to drop substantially, why are these blood clots developing? And then following on, is there any method or drug available that can dissolve these clots?
1: Keith, okay. the answer is actually it's the other way around, which is that we think that the vaccine in a very tiny number of people probably in the order of one in a million to down to one and a half a million or so they produce in response to the vaccine a factor in the blood called an antibody targeting platelet factor four so you get anti-platelet factor four antibodies platelet factor four is a key orchestrator in the activation of platelets so if you block it up or activate it with one of these antibodies you can affect the way that platelets activate themselves and they normally only activate themselves when they see a foreign surface in other words there is a hole in a blood vessel they see the lining of the blood vessel and they activate and they stick together and form a clot if you have a system that causes widespread recruitment of these platelets they all get drawn into the area where they're being activated Depleting the peripheral blood of its normal quota of platelets. So, what is the mechanism here is you make this abnormal antibody, you trigger the activation of platelets where they shouldn't be triggered. In this case, you get these cerebral venous sinus thromboses, which are lots of platelets stuck together. And because that becomes a big sink, like a giant vacuum cleaner for platelets, which are all drawn in there. There are fewer platelets than you would expect to see normally circulating in the peripheral bloodstream. And then you get the attendant problems related to having low platelets, like a rash, what we call thrombocytopenic purpura, where you get little tiny spots on the skin corresponding to where there were damaged bits of blood vessel. And too few platelets means there's a little bit of bleeding before the platelets that are there are able to plug it. Uh, So it's the other way around than what you postulated. Mm. Keith?
3: Thank you and, uh, Thank you. Yep. the other question was just is there any method or drug available that can dissolve these clots?
1: We know that once we've diagnosed a person with this problem we can break apart platelet thromboses yes, we can actually give various factors that will stop further activation of the platelets we can prevent the progression of the condition and actually the body's pretty good at removing these things if the situation resolves itself if it becomes catastrophic and completely thromboses a blood vessel it's a different matter but if we can get to people before that happens we can do various things to stop the process that's causing this because we know what the mechanism is and then people will get better thank you very much that thanks for the question one.
2: thanks for kicking us off keith and next we have a question about the earth from gary hello gary
1: hi Azra. thank you
3: very much for taking my call uh, greetings to the naked scientist hi gary thank you very much uh, uh, so I have two quick related questions to, regarding the moon and its orbit around our planet, right? So obviously our planet goes through that cycle of precession every 20,000 years. The axis swings like a pendulum, right? Now with regards to the moon's own uh, plane of orbit, does it also reciprocate and pitch as that uh, as our own axis, you know, swings like a pendulum? And lastly, uh, obviously we're not going to the era of space mining. Uh, Do you think it's a good idea for us to obviously, I don't know, like start mining from the moon? Uh, 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 I mean, I understand apparently that the moon apparently is hollow. Uh, Is that a good idea for us to obviously start trial running and and start mining on the moon? Mm.
1: Gary, interesting questions. First of all, let me say, Mm -hmm. I don't know for sure that the moon's orbit changes with the inclination of the Earth. But I'll speculate that it probably does. What Tergari is referring to is that the Earth is tilted at 23.5 degrees at the moment, but we know, because of, for various reasons, that that's not fixed. And over long timescales, there is this so-called precession effect, where in the same way as if you had a spinning top that was spinning fast in front of you, it would actually not just spin straight upwards, it would wobble around its axis as it spun that's precession the earth does the same thing its axis tilt wobbles sometimes it's a bit more sometimes it's a bit less and it does this over really long time scales and that has in turn long-term effects on things like climate because if you remember the tilt of the earth means that some parts of the earth's surface receive a lot more energy at some parts of the earth's orbit than others mm. and as a result you get seasons and this uh, tilt being changed will therefore have an impact on how the seasons play out and therefore how climate manifests on the Earth's surface. Now, the Moon orbits the Earth because the Earth is gravitationally active. The Earth is not a pure sphere, though. It's got a bit of a bulge around its middle, like most of us these days. And as a result, the gravitational field of an orbital body will will feel that bulge and there'll be a small force that would affect the attraction and the way in which it was held in that orbit so if the earth changed its orientation in space a bit then orbital bodies would feel slightly different forces and therefore their orbits would also change a bit too But because this is a very slow process and it takes years to establish and re-establish these slightly different tilts then this is going to be a very gradual thing, it's not going to be abrupt in any way. But I would speculate that the Moon will follow the Earth's centre of gravity because that's what's holding it in orbit and therefore because the Earth is not a perfect symmetric sphere the movement of the Earth will be mirrored by an adjustment in the orbit of the Moon the next bit of the question was well what about going and exploiting the moon for minerals and and other things well that's a possibility in fact uh, there are projects now which are well and truly underway to put people back on the moon in this decade and in the forthcoming years and one of those projects is actually to build a space station in orbit around the moon and if the timescales are kept to i mean that's a bit speculative at the moment because of what's going on but it will see a space station in orbit around the moon within the forthcoming few years Now one of the reasons for doing that is that it will be much easier to then survey, to visit and exploit the Moon if you don't have to keep making journeys from Earth to the Moon. You could do it via one of these uh, hop-off or jump-off points. This is going to be called the Lunar Gateway it won't make a problem with uh, exploiting the moon doing this though because the moon is not hollow the moon is actually made of the same material that the earth's crust is made from and that's because the moon came from the earth there were two planets we think that collided about 4.57 billion years ago and when that collision took place a lot of crust material from the earth was ejected into space around the earth and it slowly coalesced to make our moon so the moon is rich in minerals but the same sorts of things as you'd find on the earth's surface There are other things out there in space, though, that we might conceivably find even richer sources to mine from. Asteroids that are mineral rich and metal rich and could therefore be very useful to us in the future. They're also on our radar.
2: Hmm. Yeah, maybe that's a conversation one day about our decisions to go and do all of this out there. But that's for another day. Gary, uh, they are your answers.
3: <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank, you. Thank
2: you. Fantastic. That's Gary and Randberg. Here's a voice note that uh came in for you, Chris. Take a listen.
3: Hey, good afternoon, Azza. Um wonderful show as per usual. I've got a question for uh, the naked scientist. It's more to do with genetics. Let's say if I, a black African, right? I have a child with well a white Caucasian, okay, and that child's offspring for the next twenty or fifteen generations continues having children with white-only Caucasians. That generation, let's say the 10th or the 11th, will they still have my genetics as that great ancestor who was a completely 100% black African? Or how
1: do, how do genetics actually work? Thank you so much.
2: Wow. Yeah. Chris, your thoughts on that?
1: The way it works is that each child is a product of its parents, obviously, and shares half its genes with mum and half with dad. So, for the sake of argument, let's say dad's black, mum's white. The child will have a random selection of genes from dad, 50%, and genes from mum, 50%. So if that child has a child of its own, irrespective of the colour of the parent, again it's the 50% rule here so the child will give that child will give 50% of its genes and the partner will give 50% of its genes so the grandchild has got 25% of the genes Mm. that dad had so if we imagine that the genes that are a a black African makeup genetically are randomly smattered across the genome then you would expect the grandchildren to have 25% black African genes and 75% white Caucasian genes from those sorts of breeding examples we've just given. And so with each generation, there is this dilution effect of 50-50. So by the time you got to 10 generations, there wouldn't be zero genes, but there would be very, very few because there would be a huge dilution that would have gone on, but there would still be some. And this is not the same, though, as mitochondrial DNA, which is a different form of DNA, which you only get from your mum. And so Mm. that's another form. And that's uh, also got implications because if you only get it from your mum and a mum, say, a black person and you marry a white person, then although 50-50 genes from the uh, main genetic code will be from each parent, the mitochondria will only be from the mum. And so there are some exceptions to this rule, but it will follow that fifty-fifty dilution rule for the the main um, genome.
2: Mm, so it'll always be there, even as uh, though even though it becomes less and less and less. But ultimately, the difference between races, if we say if we if we are to use that for the purposes of this discussion, because there is no such thing, right? It's a construct. But yeah, anyway, uh, that the difference is what zero point zero five or something, and this is really about things like hair and skin tone
1: yeah the the genes that yeah i mean the thing is that the genes that give us uh, the way we look some of them are randomly smattered across our chromosomes but others are Mm. in what are called a linkage group so if you've got a gene that does a certain job in the body right next door to it will be another gene that does a different job in the body but even though they're two different genes, because they're really close to each other in your genome, they're next door to each other on the chromosome, because of the way DNA gets inherited, actually there's a higher chance those two genes will get inherited together. So there are some characteristics that tend to, even though there's this dilution effect I mentioned with 50-50 going each way, there will be some genes and some characteristics that do go together. They're inherited together because they're so close together together on the chromosomes right. so you might find certain facial features or skin tones or particular hair configurations but perhaps african sort of curly hair would would go along with other features because the genes that endow you with those particular appearances those phenotypes are close together on the chromosomes others oh, on the right. other hand are smeared all over the place in our dna and so they are less likely to be inherited together those characteristics
2: also oh. Oh, random <laughs> um, next, let's go to Temba in Pretoria. Hello, Temba.
3: Hi, how are you?
2: Good, welcome, Temba.
3: Good. I've got a question for the neuroscientist. Yeah. Uh, I'm finding regarding the retinal implant uh, stem cells trials that we're busy with in the UK. Uh, as I said, it was halted uh, because of the coronavirus pandemic. I want to find out now, are they proceeding with the trials at this stage or not?
1: I I, I don't know the answer to that question, but certainly this is very important work that is an ongoing process of research. The idea being that can we regenerate the retina by putting in cells that are stem cells or early precursors of cells that are going to produce the retina and in this way make good damage done by disease processes. There are some diseases where either a particular group of cells or a tissue doesn't develop properly or for various reasons degenerates and as it degenerates it has a knock-on domino damaging effect on other tissues and if you restore the underlying function you can prevent the damage progressing and in some cases also reverse the damage people are looking at making implants for the eye which uh, are patches of restorative tissue to do this we've reported on that on this program before i don't know though to what extent these these trials have been interrupted by covid it's likely there will have been some impacts. But if you've already received one of these implants or that people are already recipients of the treatment, then they will continue to be monitored. But it may well have interrupted treating people uh, who haven't yet received any kind of intervention just, just because of the constraints of working at the moment.
2: Mm. Temba, there. Thank you.
1: Thank you, thank you so much. much.
2: Thank you. And next we go to Midrand with Tonic. Hello, Tonic. Good
3: afternoon. Thank you. Hello. My question is about the nuclear waste. Could we send it out to space? In-
2: so disposing nuclear waste by mm. sending it out of space?
1: Is this the- feasible? The- well, The <laughs> answer is we-, we, could, we could have in place a system to dump our nuclear waste into space and contaminate space instead. And the argument goes, space is a very big place, there's plenty of room for it. The problem is twofold. One, uh, that if you dump things in space, they have a horrible habit of coming back to haunt you later. And in fact, uh, in the last six months, a a mysterious object appeared back on collision course with the Earth and came very close to uh, coming and hitting us. That object was a rocket that was put into space 40 or 50 years ago. And uh, it was one of those sort of disposable bits of a rocket which was blasted off and it ended up in some orbit around the sun that meant that just by chance was on an earthbound course again five decades later so one of the things we'd have to make sure of is if we did dump something dangerous into space we absolutely couldn't have it ending up on an earthbound course or there being a chance that we might cross paths with it later because then it could spell disaster but probably more importantly is that in order to get something into space and out of out of our way you've got to get it there in the first place and this is very dangerous The most dangerous aspect of any kind of space journey is the launch. And that's closely followed by the recovery of the things that uh, are going into space, rockets and astronauts and so on, getting them back to Earth. And the, the danger inherent to blasting off a huge payload of highly radioactive waste that we don't want on Earth because it's theoretically harmful to people were it to be spilled all over the place you can see the contradiction there that, okay, so we're going to put that on a rocket, which is basically a controlled bomb, and (laughs) fire it off into space, where on the way up it may well have an accident, it may blow apart, it may fill the atmosphere with all kinds of high-grade radioactive waste and there's no chance of cleaning it up and loads of people would end up being contaminated. So for that reason we think the lesser of two evils is in fact to store this stuff in a safer way as we can where we know it is, tell people where it is, put it somewhere safe, know for a fact it's going to be radioactive for hundreds of thousands of years and therefore to steer clear, keep an eye on it, but at least we know where it is. Better the devil you do know than take a chance with one you don't.
2: Oh, for that long?
1: (laughs) Well, well, yes, I mean, the half-lives of some of these isotopes, some of the um, certain contaminants and also materials which are in these things, are very, very high-level radioactive waste which will remain... Lethally radioactive for hundreds of thousands of years.
2: Mm, 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 Wow. So it's going to be with us uh, pretty much for a long, long time. Chris, thank you so much. There are so many questions. We'll pick up with Neville's one because I'm also curious because he says, many household cleaners claim to clean 99.9% of germs. What is the comma or uh, comma uh, 1%? Yeah, what's the, uh, where, where do they get destroyed? that number from? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think
1: the reason they do this, right, is that if I said they killed 100% of germs and I found one germ, yeah. then I would say they were wrong. But yeah. if they say 99.9%, that's as good as saying all germs, but it leaves the door open for them being wrong occasionally. So it's much harder to sue them. I, I think it's lawyer speak.
2: It's lawyer speak. All right. Thank you so much, Chris.
0: you <laughs> right. next week. Bye, Azza. Take care. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK.